John chapter 7, verses 25 to 36 is where we will be focusing our attention today as we continue to praise Christ, the source of our satisfaction. John 7, verses 25 to 36. If you're a guest with us, we would invite you to follow along in the copy of God's Word that we have provided for you in the seat back in front of you. You'll find today's text on page 893. John 7, verses 37 to 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. And cried out. I can't go any farther. You're going to have to look at me a second. The words that we are about to read are so poignant, they're so powerful. that I think you would be best served if I even stop right here to help you see the picture of what's going on around this text before we actually delve into the content of it. I want to borrow your imaginations for a moment. Everything I'm saying here is as real as I can understand it to be. Some of it we know from Scripture. Some of it we know from the Old Testament. Some of it we know from history. It's AD 29. Somewhere between late September, early October. All the summer harvest has been gathered in and it's time to celebrate. It's not just an optional party, it's an essential one, Uh, one in which uh, any Jewish male within 20 miles of Jerusalem was obligated to come to, and in many cases would bring their families. The weather that time of year is nearly perfect, at least in my opinion, lower 80s during the day to upper 60s in the evenings, thousands upon thousands of visiting Israelites and their families have squeezed into the Jerusalem metro area. Of all the required religious festivals, this one, hands down, at least in their opinion, was the best. Josephus said of it, it is the season of our gladness. In fact, it was so festive that Zechariah, the prophet, used the Feast of Tabernacles as a symbol for the glorious future of the people of God. He said there would, be, there would come an end-time Feast of Tabernacles that we would enjoy, and people from all over the world would come to enjoy it. It's fun. The more that I delve into 
like this feast in and of itself, it is truly something that I think you would enjoy. Most of us read the ceremonies that, that are prescribed in the Old Testament and we think, hard pass. No thanks. Don't really care to slaughter a lamb and put it in my house. Don't really want to stay in a tent. But you've got to catch like, what's going on here in the broader perspective. Whether you hailed from far away or lived in Jerusalem proper, every family literally camped out for seven days in self-made tents. Maybe there was some glamping going on. I imagine that some tents were nicer than others, but even the people who had a house in Jerusalem would go up to the top of their house and set up a tent. Now, I get it. Some of you just don't think that's fun, but when you're ever forced to do it, it usually becomes a pleasant memory. So they would do this every year. I mean, at night... Uh, the, the tent was built in such a way that they could actually see out of it, and they would gaze into the stars, reflecting on how their forefathers also dwelled in tents when God took them from Egypt to the promised land. They would rehearse these miraculous events and these stories to their kids as day would dawn. The people would put on their Sabbath best and they would make their way to the temple. This happened every day of the feast. Just like you dressed up, came to church today. They were doing this every day. They would all show up at the temple. And on their way, they had to pick up some party favors. Everybody was required to have them. There were two things in particular. Uh, in one hand, in their left hand, they were supposed to hold citrus, some piece of citrus fruit. And it was to be a reminder of the land to which God had brought them. The, the bountiful sweet land. In the other hand, they were to have three branches in particular. It was a combination of palm, willow, and myrtle branches, which were emblematic of their stages of the ancestors' journey through the wilderness. So you, you've got the party favors, you've got your best clothes on, uh, you camped out at night, you told stories about how God miraculously provided, you show up to the temple the next day, and you watch a ceremony. And the ceremony, I mean, just had the crowd on edge. They loved this. Some people, it is written, like, aspired their entire lives to see this ceremony take place. Basically, the priest, the high priest at that time, would take a pitcher, a golden pitcher, and he would bring it out. It was a special one only used for this occasion. Everybody is there gathering. They want to see this pitcher. He makes the journey from the temple precincts to the pool of Siloam to fill up this pitcher with water. Now, as this is happening, I'm trying to imagine this, especially from multiple sources. People are singing psalms. There's a, like the greatest hits of the psalms. <laughs> They're led by a temple choir. You like the singing here this morning? Imagine this. Thousands of people singing songs that they all know from their childhood, waving their fruit and their branches in rhythm with that which is being sung while the priest makes his way down to the pool, dips that water from the golden pitcher, makes his way back to the temple precincts, and ascends to the altar. And you're wondering at this point, like, well, what's he going to do? This isn't Passover, this is Tabernacles. What he would do was take one trip 
around the altar holding up the golden pitcher, and then he would pour the water out onto the altar as a drink sacrifice to God. And the people would cheer, and the festivities would officially kick off another day. You're like, what's the deal? I don't get it. Why, why the water being poured out? It was a reminder of them of the ways that God had miraculously provided water for them when they were in the wilderness. There was a certain aspect when they were looking out about, you know, they made it. They survived. I mean, they were in a desert for over 40 years. Millions of them. And yet God would in the most unexpected ways provide water for them. The most notable of when Moses would strike the rock and the water would come out. They were just celebrating that God had provided for them in such an amazing way. And so that would happen every day. Except for the final day. On the final day, the climactic day, the scriptures call it here, we already read it. The last day, the great day, things were a little different. There would be the same song and dance. There would be the same ceremony. The camp out, the stories, the fireside meals, the lighting of candles at night, the nice clothes, the morning praise songs, the retrieval of the water with the golden pitcher. All the same except for one exception on the last day. Instead of going around the altar one time with the golden pitcher... The priest goes around seven times. I don't know exactly why seven. I mean, I think of the Battle of Jericho and that climactic number that is typically put together for us in the Old Testament. Maybe it indicated that though they wait for God's final outpouring of rain and miraculous end-time provision, it's going to come at the perfect time. It delays the inevitable. I have good reason to think that that could be it. Another reason why seven times, it could be that it pointed to the fact that there is still coming a perfect and final outpouring of water for the people of God. So you need to understand that tabernacles not only look back, but it looked ahead to God's final provision, his final outpouring of blessing, his final outpouring of water. And so some accounts actually tell us that the priest would make his way around the seven times of that altar, and then he would hold the pitcher up above his head, and almost to like tempt the crowd, he would hold it higher, and people would cheer, and it was like this moment of like, all right, just finally pour the water already. You get it, it's like, all right, start the fireworks. Just cut the ribbons so the parade can begin. You know, like everybody, like it's fever pitch, they're excited. And he finally pours out the water, thereby marking the last great and final day of the ceremony. And friends, we have good reason to believe that it is in this context, maybe even immediately after such a solemn event, that Jesus will once more address the crowds. Crowds, by the way, excited about the hope of God's blessing and end-time abundance. Crowds, the same crowds, enamored with him as the potential provider of these end-time blessings. He's going to address the crowds, some of whom are enraged by him as an imposter, as we've seen in recent weeks. And some in this crowd are investigating him to see if he could really be the one who could secure such full and final blessing. 
It was in the, the solemnity and drama of those dramatic moments at Tabernacles that Jesus exclaimed, now look at your Bibles again. And he says it at the top of his voice. He's yelling out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Without the picture, you just think, oh, he's just making another generic proclamation, inviting people to follow him. But those reading this, especially Jewish Christians, would have understood the significance of what was going on in that moment. Even the Gentile ones, who, when they began to read the Old Testament, would finally begin to put together what was going on in this moment. We not only have a picture of Jesus providing that which they need, we also have his proclamation. Note takers, be warned, you will not like me today. But I will not mess up this story for your clean notes. <laughs> The proclamation. What is it that he's saying? When he says that, do you hear it? Do you get it? Does it make sense to you? I mean, here he is at the high point of the feast that celebrated God's past miraculous provision of water and light. We'll talk about that more next week. This feast that anticipated and looked forward to this end-time age in which water would flow freely, providing healing and abundance. And it's at this point that Jesus says, if thirsty, come to me and drink. What you have here is a command and a condition. It's actually two commands, one condition. The condition is pretty simple and easy to follow. It says, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone has some longing, and then the commands are come and drink. Now, you know that people in the ancient Near East especially uh, were acutely aware of the dangers, both personally and societally, of drought, of a lack of water. It is so hard for us to imagine. I, I, I've never really been able to fully resonate. I mean, even if you were like doing soccer practice on a hot summer afternoon and really wanted some water, that does not even begin to compare with how much they valued water because life is truly at stake. We know that water's sitting over there in the Gatorade cooler. They would find themselves in certain positions where they don't know if it's going to come at all. It was just last year. It's been less than a year now. Because of my partnership with uh, one of our missionaries and our elder candidate, Rob Clark, on his behalf, I went over to Togo, Africa. We were doing some training with pastors and one of the most fascinating, memorable, and the, the kind of thing that you remember till the day you die kind of ceremonies that I saw while I was there was we took a three-hour ride out in the middle of nowhere in West Africa to a village that was receiving a well at the hand of a bunch of Americans who financed it. This well was particularly expensive. It had to go four times farther down than any other place for centuries, nobody had been able to get water in this particular village. And so you're probably wondering, well, well, how in the world they live? They would walk three miles round trip to the next village to get the water that they needed for the day. And even that had a yellowish tint to it and the children were getting regularly sick. I mean, I, this came to mind this morning. 
I'm, I'm, I'm running the water and I'm washing my hands and I'm looking at this like clean water coming out of my faucet and I'm thinking, I'm using more water here in these 30 seconds to 60 seconds to wash my hands than they'll get all day long. Welcome to the ancient Near East. Now, Jerusalem, thankfully, did have access to certain rivers, to certain springs. But guess what? No rain, no water, no spring. For them, life is necessarily connected to water. It's not like, oh, great. So the idea of thirst here certainly resonates with them. They recognize this as a craving for life. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone wants to live, let him come to me. Now you're saying, all right, well, what's he offering? Is he offering bottles of water like a vendor at a hot spring event? Of course not. I say this for the benefit of the children in the room. You'd be thinking that, oh, well, Jesus is just going to offer them some water. <laughs> He's got some bottles, you know, that the disciples got from a spring somewhere. He's going, no, that's not what's going on. It's a picture of something else. For those of you who are older, the picture is obvious. They know that it's a thirsting for something, a desire to be pleased or satisfied or satiated. But what is it exactly? Well, in the context of everything that's going on, what is it that the people were longing for? They were not longing for water physically. They were longing for that water that would flow, marking the end of time where God righted all wrongs and fixed everything. They were wanted an abundance of water in the end in which God would provide for all the ways that he had promised them, where there would be no more threat, where there would be abundance. It's interesting that the passage that was read for us today from Ezekiel 47 pictured the water flowing from the temple. And did you notice what happened? It would go out into the desert and then overtake even salt water. And it would turn into what Revelation 21 would call a river of life. A river characterized by life. There's abundance there. Get the picture. It isn't just that they're looking for some kind of physical satisfaction. They're looking for that which only God himself would provide in the very end when all wrongs are rightened and all threats are eliminated. That's the thirst that he's talking about. Does anyone long for that? Do you long for satisfaction for that day when God finally fixes all that is broken and makes all that is sad come untrue? The picture of abundance of water is looking to that end time age where God fixes it all. And Jesus is saying, if you sense that, if you experience that, if you long for that, come to me. That's a command. I am not a Greek scholar. I know a little Greek. And the seminary joke is, and he runs a restaurant down the street. Sorry. Dad joke. That was total dad joke. Um, I do know a little Greek, and I, but I've, I'm not smart enough to like ever say, uh, man, I don't know why the ESV translators put it this way. You know, they're off their rocker. I, I can't say that. So I'm not saying this in a condemnatory way. I'm saying it in a truly questioning way if you're a Greek scholar. The, 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 um, the tone here is, is imperative. It's a command. The way that the English translations put it is let him come, let him drink. Like, hey, you're, you're welcome. You can come if you want to. 
But like it's crystal clear in the original. Do this. Come to me. Drink. Jesus isn't giving the thirsty any other options. It's not, it's not an invitation. It's an imperative. Come to me. Drink. Make this happen. And I love that he says, come to me. You could be thirsty for God's abundance and blessing and life, and you can go to the wrong source. You know that, that crazy thing that happens to people who get stranded out in the ocean. They begin, their body convinces them at some point that they should actually drink the salt water around them, and yet it kills them faster. Or even someone who ironically thirsts for alcohol to quench their thirst. I never got that. You watch a, a, a beer commercial around football season, and it's like, had a long, hard day. I saw one the other day. Somebody was on a run, and it was like, I love to drink a beer after a run. And I'm thinking, doesn't alcohol dry you out? Like, why, why would you want something that would actually suck the life-giving nutrients from your body after a run? That's what drunkenness is, by the way. You're dehydrated, and you're not thinking clearly. You can, my point is you can go to the wrong source if you're thirsty. Jesus says, come to me. Don't, don't go to that which will kill you. Don't go to that which will actually make you worse off. Come to me and drink. Now, this leads to an all-important question. I'm going to target anybody, especially between the ages of 7 and 13 here for a moment. Think with me, guys. What do you think Jesus means when he says, drink me. It's kind of weird, isn't it? How do you drink Jesus? It's an interesting thought. We answer the older people among us with obvious disdain, if they only knew. This is a figure of speech. We don't drink Jesus, we find satisfaction in Jesus. Okay, adults, let me talk to you for a second. How does one actually go about finding satisfaction in Jesus? You're so all-knowing, you're so all-wise, you're so superior to the 7 to 13-year-olds. How does one find satisfaction in Jesus then, if that's what it means? Is it through some kind of ritual that we enact or have enacted upon us? Right? Christianity has some rituals, right? Is it when we drink the, the communion cup that, that we're drinking of Jesus? Or we saw baptisms the last two Sundays. Hey, it's, it's water. It represents, you know, the satisfaction of God's eternal need. Does something happen when those people get, get dipped under the water? Maybe they drink a little bit before they get out. And then they drink of Jesus. It's not ritualistic. And friends, I, I, no, I'm not trying to be ultra-offensive to those of you who have grown up in Roman Catholicism, but I do want to say that there's no way on God's green earth that you could ever read this text and think, what is the author trying to say, and assume that Jesus wants you to partake of a ritual to enjoy him. Just telling you. We can talk about it more after. The only way you can come up with an interpretation like that is to establish an outside entity called the magisterium that represents the tradition of the church, and the tradition of the church will have to tell you that the text doesn't say what it actually looks like it says. 
But Jesus is not talking about finding satisfaction in him through some kind of a ritual. We'll say, okay, well, how do I find satisfaction in him? Maybe it's through some kind of mysterious or ecstatic experience. Jesus just zaps me one day and I finally start finding satisfaction in him. Maybe I pray it down. Maybe I do some fasting or some kind of event that will bring it upon me. No, that's not it. And it's not a mental trick, by the way. We live in a world that actually says, hey, if you think it, you can be it. We even think that about gender. Body parts don't matter. If you think that you're this, you're that. There's no self-actualizing. It's like, okay, I believe that Jesus satisfies me, therefore he does satisfy me. Uh, There's no first century category for self-actualization. What does Jesus mean when he says, drink of me? How do we find satisfaction in Jesus? Verse 38 clarifies, look there. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You get it? How do we find satisfaction in him? Whoever believes in me. Whoever is entrusting oneself to Jesus, whoever has faith in Jesus, it's a matter of faith. If, if you like the word faith, I, all I want to emphasize, if you use that word, is we're not talking about some supernatural experience. I, I'm careful with the word faith because most people eva- equate faith with a lack of reason. They say, oh, I took a leap of faith. Like it makes no sense. Okay. If you like the word faith, all I'm saying is we're not talking about some weird experience or even the word believe. Some people like the word believe. That's what's here, those who believed in him. And yet here's my problem with using the word belief. Even though it's a Bible word, I'm talking about our culture, most people think of belief as intellectual sin. Like, oh, I intellectually accept the fact that Jesus is this or that. I think the, the best word to use in our modern day is trust the one who is trusting in him. Because when we talk about trust, we're normally emphasizing relationship. Relationship. Jesus is saying, if you want all those end-time longings to be fully satisfied, it comes to the one who is trusting in me, depending upon me, relying on me. Just having mentioned these uh, various, you know, mission opportunities, like, for example, having the opportunity to go to uh, Togo, Africa, or uh, to go to East Asia. Now, there is a a matter of trust that goes on for any individual who travels and their spouse. You, You can't see them. They are not there. They are not with you. They are not present. And yet, even though you're not with them, you trust that all of your needs back at home are being represented well by them, like A, keeping the children alive, B, paying bills, things of that nature, not burning down the house. I mean, all is well at home. You're trusting an individual in that. Jesus is not physically here. He is somewhere else. But what he's saying is those who trust in him for all that they really need will find end-time satisfaction in and through him. 
And notice what he says, though. This is kind of interesting because look at verse 38 again. He says, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow water, I mean, flow rivers of living water. That's strange. What does it mean that that rivers of living water are going to come out of our heart? Well, friends, you understand that that in this, uh, Jesus is using allusions, metaphors, pictures that would have been very familiar with people of that particular time and place. If you know your Bible well, and you would have grown up in their culture, what Jesus says makes sense. If you're the normal 21st century American watching eight hours of Netflix a week, you probably don't have a clue what he's saying. And I know what it's like to binge watch a good TV show, so I'm not being condemnatory. But all I'm trying to say is we struggle to catch illusions that would have made sense to them. Can I give you an example? Another missions opportunity here, different part of the world. A few years ago, I'm in a huge country in East Asia that shall remain unnamed. And in that particular context, I'm actually trying to train pastors, house church pastors. But one of the things that they did that I thought was fascinating was I needed a good reason to be there. So they asked me to teach some classes to um, a school, a language school. And it was around November when we were there. And so what, what the uh, teacher of the language school asked me to do for all these uh, students who didn't speak our language uh, said, hey, we're fascinated with American Thanksgiving. And the fact that you're in America, this would be awesome. Would you teach the kids uh, about American Thanksgiving? And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. But I couldn't imagine anybody not knowing what Thanksgiving was. If you have to ever prepare, just try it. If you have to ever prepare something on your culture for somebody who has zero idea about it, it will blow your mind. Like I started trying to put together my little slideshow, you know, like for the kids, and I didn't even realize this. I started hearing that the parents were going to be showing up too because they've never seen an American in person. So, I mean, it was a spectral oddity. You know, like people were wanting to show up, and I'm like, i got to make this thing good. And I start doing my research, and I know, like, some Christian origins of Thanksgiving. I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. But then I've got the cultural things that I still need to explain. And I ultimately come up with a PowerPoint presentation that consists of the following. Pictures of, and I want you to imagine this, if you've never known anything of American Thanksgiving. My pictures consisted of pilgrims. Indians, a cornucopia, football, a roasted turkey, and a pumpkin pie. And everybody here is like, oh, that makes sense to me. I get those pictures, yeah. The the foreign people (laughs) that I was ministering to and teaching were blown away. I remember one kid asking the question, so what does American football have to do with these these guys with the funny hats? We're immersed, therefore we're informed. You need to understand something. They are immersed, therefore they are informed. I do not have the time to catch you up in this sermon, 
on all that would have come to mind when Jesus was saying what he was saying. But if, if you're one of those that likes to dive deep, let me give you a brief survey of just a few passages that would have came to mind when Jesus is referencing what he does when people trust in him. One is Zechariah 14, 16 to 17. You just jot it down. It talks about all the families of the earth coming to enjoy the Feast of Booths and that there will be adequate rain on all of them. And those who don't go to the Feast of Booths, listen to this, they won't get the rain, even Egypt. The passage, this passage, Zechariah 14, 16 to 17, was actually read on the first day of the feast according to the liturgy. What are they doing? They're associating in time outpouring of rain with God's spiritual abundance that would go for all people. They got the picture. Water, spirit, abundance, life. It all made sense to them. Here's another one, Isaiah 12, verses 3 through 6. They would read this one at the beginning of each day when that ceremony would start with a golden pitcher. Just listen to it. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known to all the earth. Sing and shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You know what he's saying? There's coming a day where God's going to show up and be with you again, and it's going to be a party because there will be plenty. And you know what the picture is? Going to a well that's got plenty of water, providing that abundance for all who are around. Another is Zechariah 13.1. It points to a fountain being opened for the cleansing of all God's people in the last days. Another is Ezekiel 36, 25 to 30. Jesus already referred to this one in John 4 where he talked about the spirit who would come and he analogized the spirit's coming with the sprinkling of water on people, making them pure, making it possible for God to live with them. And then the passage that we read earlier from Ezekiel 47, same thing. What you you have here, friends, is these associations, just as you think of, oh, uh, cornucopia, turkey, pumpkin pie, Thanksgiving. We have plenty to be thankful for. It makes sense to you. They would hear stuff like waters and rivers and abundance and think, end times, God's going to take care of it. There will be no more scarcity. All of our needs will be met. Everything that we've longed for will finally come true. And when Jesus says, out of your heart, literally out of your stomach, your inner person, will come rivers of living water, what he is saying is, you will never need to go anywhere else. When you come to me, you will have a perpetual source of satisfaction. Everything that you long for, everything that you think needs to be made right in this world, you will experience from the inside out. They would have picked up on it. You're like, ah, I don't know, Justin. Seems like a stretch to me. All right. Maybe. So let's turn our attention from the picture and the proclamation to the point. Jesus makes, I mean, John makes the point, just in case you didn't get it. Just in case we've watched too much streaming media, just in case we're not picking up on the biblical metaphors, the Old Testament allusions. Here, John's going to make it explicit for all of us in verse 39. Look at your Bible, please, there. Verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So even if you don't know all the illusions, if you can't make all the connections, John's going to help you out. And this is what he says. Hey, uh, what he's talking about here is the Spirit coming and indwelling us and living with us and meeting these end-time needs. Did you ever note Those of you who have been carefully studying John with us over the last, I don't know, I don't even remember anymore. I would assume it's at least four months that we've been doing this. Back in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus, and do you know what he says of him? He says, I'm baptizing him, but this is going to be the one who, listen to this, baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. Like, whoa. This guy's just not going to have the Holy Spirit. He's going to immerse people into the Holy Spirit? He's going to immerse people into God? Another with John 4. Flip over a few pages and you see this conversation with Nicodemus. And do you remember what went down there? He he tells Nicodemus that he must be born of water and the Spirit. Notice that connection? He's alluding again to Ezekiel 36 verses 24 to 28 where it talks about the Spirit coming, giving cleansing to all God's people, and He will come and live with them and empower them and help them. And then here we see it again, verse 39. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The meaning otherwise unknown is now made clear. The fact that John would not assume this knowledge, but make it explicit for us, should keep us from rushing past it too quickly. Look, I want you to know something, friends, whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, here's the reminder, Jesus has really given you all that you really need. Just as earlier, what we really need is the spirit and eternal life, John 3. So here, Jesus is saying, I'm providing what you really need. It's not temporal water. It's eternal water. See, he did the same thing in John 6. Remember, they were giving him a hard time. They were like, oh, I want the real bread. I want the physical bread. Hey, when's this stuff going to be baked up? I can smell it already. I can't wait to partake of some physical bread. And Jesus, for the entire sermon, is trying to tell them, no, that is not what I'm offering. I am offering that which will give you eternal life if you partake of it. That which will satisfy your every end-time longing. He's doing the same thing here. He said, this isn't even a metaphor, by the way. Let's be crystal clear. This isn't even a metaphor for temporal satisfaction. Jesus will give you, as some churches, maybe even around here, God forbid, will preach. Jesus will give you all, fulfill all your relational longings. And Jesus will fill up your bank account. And Jesus will fill up your sense of self-significance. And he'll make you popular and happy and pleasant. And he'll help you feel like you're actually doing something with your life. That is not what it's saying. There would be multiplied thousands of people who would believe in this very thing. Who would still die physically. Millions of people. Some in obscurity, some hated by the government, some poor as church mice. That is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about that which gets fixed in the very end, all that which we ultimately need, that which we sense now that's broken and off about this world, and we think it should be fixed. 
Augustine sums up the internal experience well. You know this quote. It is so good if you read or if you could stomach his biography, autobiography. He gets to this one spot because he's pursuing satisfaction and all these different things, and he finally exclaims, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Listen to me, please. Please, just a few more minutes. For those people who get the money and those people who get the popularity and those people who feel some kind of like sense of achieving a greater purpose in the world, they still find themselves dissatisfied. You know how it goes, right? It's expectation, step one, and then striving, and then accomplishment. And what's the next step? Emptiness. You have to find the next thing. One of the saddest stories I saw in the news in the last year was the suicide of Miss America, either 2018 or 19. She jumped off a 20 or 30-story building, and they actually found in her diary the very steps I just described to you. She said, I'm trying to find this satisfaction. I keep striving for the next thing, and once I get the one trophy, I realize that I haven't done enough because I need to get the next. For those of you who think that what you really long for is sexual satisfaction or a companionship or a full bank account or a great job, you are drinking from the wrong source. What Jesus is offering here is that which is broken in this world and in your heart that only he can fix and heal. The Holy Spirit's special indwelling and empowering presence it was not yet the expected privilege of all of God's people. Did you know that? He was offering something special. God would come and live with them inside them. But because of their sin, that's not possible. You know why things stink to you? You know why the world feels so bad? It's because at times we are trying to do it without the relational favor of God. We're looking for something else. And God cannot relate to us in our sinful and rebellious state. He is holy. He should obliterate us. He, he should send us to hell to suffer forever for the treason that we have enacted against him. And yet, and yet he promised in the Old Testament that, you know what? I'm going to make it possible for me to come and to live with you once more, to live in you. And you're like, oh, that would be amazing. How's that going to happen? Here's what has to happen. Jesus has to come and he has to fix us and he has to cleanse us so that the Holy Spirit can come and indwell us. Do you notice the text saying that? It says, particularly, that the Holy Spirit would not come until Jesus had been glorified. And you're like, all right, come on. Oh, what do we mean by glorified? Here's my simplistic way of doing it for time's sake. The Spirit couldn't come until Jesus had had his time to shine. That's what the word glory means. Do you remember earlier where they were talking about his hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come? They thought that that was just going to be a big party. You know when Jesus' real time to shine was? John will make this crystal clear. It was when he died for sin. It's when he was buried. It's when he rose again and he ascended back into heaven. That was the glorification of Jesus. That's when he was on display. Similar thing was done back in John 3 where he says, Hey, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And you're like, oh, lifted up. That means everybody's going to like Jesus. No, he was talking about lifted up like that bronze serpent on a pole. Like lifted up on the cross. 
When I finally die and pay for the price of sin and cleanse people of that contaminant and I unite them to myself and I give them resurrection life, I will physically get off the scene and I will send the Holy Spirit to come. And now your every eternal sad, I mean, need, your every eternal thirst is going to be satiated because the Spirit of God will live inside of you. Indeed, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Or better yet, when he rests in us. That's what it's talking about. And so, you listen carefully, friends, on a practical note to what the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, prescribes and promises. Listen, I don't care who you are in here today. There's a prescription. There is an imperative. There is a command. If you sense that this world is broken and messed up and your life is a hot mess, or even if it looks like it's all together, but you know on the inside it's not, you have a command. Come to Jesus and drink and trust in him by faith. Believe that he can actually accomplish this in you. And with that prescription comes a promise. This is awesome. He's going to send his spirit to finally fill that God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. It's finally satisfied. He died and rose again and ascended into heaven for the Spirit to fill that. And so, friends, we embrace that which has been given to us in the Spirit. He has forgiven us. He has satisfied us. He has enabled us. He ensures eternity with Him and new heavens and new earth. And can I make one more just theological point? And every time I do this, I feel like I'm hurting somebody's feelings. This one I'm just not going to be as careful about. Um, I want you to know that when you believe in Jesus, you get all that you need of the Holy Spirit. Uh, despite uh, what some Pentecostals and Charismatics may say, that you need some additional outpouring of the Spirit, some additional experience. I'm telling you, everything that you need to satisfy that eternal longing has already come in your faith in Jesus Christ. He did it all. Sometimes people are like, oh, I need more of the Spirit. I, I need to go get in a retreat in the mountains, and I need to just, just empty my mind. No, that's Buddhism. That's not biblical Christianity. You already have it. Jesus says, I've provided it. Some people think, well, if I could just be more holy, if I could be more surrendered, if I could work myself up a little more, maybe I'll finally have the Spirit. No, he already did everything needed for you to enjoy the Spirit. All you need is to believe in him, to trust in him. Friends, this is the most practical thing for me. You say, oh, you get paid to do this. I understand why you're emphasizing this. Look, I need this. I've got kids that I'm trying to raise to love Jesus too. We experience physical malady, financial distress. We know what it's like to run into problems, to have ambitions and to see them squash. And you know what's been so good for me this week? Man, I'm telling you, I have feasted on this and I have slept well. The Spirit is in me and has given me everything that I need. All is well. If we have elder issues, church issues, major spiritual needs, I hear of friends and family that are suffering acutely, physically, I'm okay. 
The Spirit has given me all that I need. I, I have it all already because of what Jesus did. Some of you don't need to trust in Jesus to get this for the first time. You just need to remember that you've already got it. Which brings us to the, the last movement of this. We move from the point to the people, and you're like, oh my goodness, Justin. You said that we were going to study all the way down to the end of the chapter, and you've only spent this much time on these three verses. Don't worry. I really think I can do this in less than three minutes. And guess what? And it still matter. By God's grace, I have the Holy Spirit living in me. <laughs> the personal responses of verses 40 to 52. Just read it through with me, and I want you to see if you can identify the responses to Jesus' proclamation. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, pause there for a second, and do you see the two groups? It ends with a division being among them. What are the two groups? Well, one group is confessing. They don't know it all, but they're like, this is the Messiah. This is the Deuteronomy 18 guy that's going to make it all right. This is the Christ. This is the, the promised prophet, priest, ruler that's going to come and fix all that's broken that we see in the prophets. Like some of them are confessing. And guess what? When they confess him in faith, they enjoy everything that he's offering and will offer. But then there's that second group. and the, You need to be careful with this one. They're not, they're not the third group. They're this mediating group that are really dangerous. They're confused. They're really confused. Did you notice that they're like, well, I don't know if he can really be the Christ because, and did you follow the logic? This guy's from Galilee, and the, the, the Christ, he's going to come from Bethlehem. He's going to be born of the tribe of David. And you're like, duh, <laughs> that's him. But guess what? They had bad information, but they still wouldn't act on him in light of it. Misinformation about Jesus is majorly deadly. Some people don't believe in Jesus because they don't understand what they're looking for in the first place, which is why I would practically advocate for those of you who are in Jesus trying to reach other people for Jesus, it's really good just to read the Bible with other people so they can understand what they should be looking for in the first place. These people, they had bad information. And in light of that, they're going to miss out on these eschatological blessings, these end-time blessings, the, the coming of the Spirit. But then there's a third group that becomes more obvious to us. It's not just the confessing and the confused, but there's also the contentious. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Remember, they sent out these guys to arrest Jesus, and they were like, you know, moths staring at a light bulb. It says, verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I don't know what it's like to be a professional, like security officer and be assigned something and then be so enamored by the something you were assigned to that you couldn't do your job. But it is interesting. They're like, we can't touch them. And by the way, unless you think that they're just some like hired heavy, you know, like they're hitmen, the temple officers 
were also Jewish guys too, and they really did have the equivalent of like mall security clearance. So they can't just sweep in there and arrest whoever they want to arrest. Like they've been, de- I mean, they're basically volunteers. Uh, they know the Bible too, and they've done their research. And like, I can't arrest this guy. So it's not unusual for them to be able to resist what the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted in this moment, just a historical note. But moving on, notice how the Pharisees respond. They answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law, and it's accursed. Notice the word accursed, friends. Um, Yeah, I'm going to say it. Damned. Damn these people, this crowd. You're going to follow these people who are under the eternal condemnation of God? There's no neutrality here, friends. These people were outright contentious. They were like, we have to stop this now. But there's some sound judgment breaking through in verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Old Testament law always prescribed that somebody was heard in the presence of two or three witnesses. And they're acting without, they won't even hear him out. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Hilarious mistake number three. Jonah came from Galilee. He was the one that Jesus would reference that say, on the third day I would rise. <laughs> Nahum came from Galilee. And he's the one that spoke explicitly of the coming of a greater prophet. These guys are so blinded by their rage that they won't even look at the facts. They get his origin wrong. They don't even do their homework to see where he's born. They're not even paying attention anymore to like the basic scriptures that they should have known. They just don't want this guy. And so they are contentious. But here's what you need to see. The contentious and the confused will suffer the same eternal fate. Some of you would be like, well, I'm still thinking about Jesus. I don't really get him. You know, I don't know if I'm really going to entrust myself in them. But those guys, man, they're way off. No, you're just as off as they are. The only right option is for you to come to Jesus and drink of him by faith. Some of you in this room this morning need to come to him by faith before you even walk out these doors. There's nothing else left for you than to trust that he is the meter of your eternal need through his death and burial and resurrection. That's some of you. That's where we find ourselves in this story. And then there's another group of you, the confessors. Friends, I want to encourage you. You need to remember what they already or what we already have and enjoy it. Limitless supply for everything we need in Jesus. I don't know what you got this morning. I never know. It's sorrow. Maybe it's sorrow, deep sorrow and struggle. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's, it's sin. It just feels like it, it, it is like dominating you. It, it, it is just internal struggle and tension. Here's the deal. You are supplied. You have the spirit. You have all that you need. Will you do me a favor? If you feel that struggle, if you feel that tension, would you write down two verses and check them out on your own time today? 
Maybe even use them with your small group. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hint, Peter's going to remind those people who are struggling and under persecution, they have everything they need in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. That's the other. This latter one is better for those of you who are struggling with sin. If it's secret sexual sin, if it's anxiety of some kind, if it's anger or rage, whatever it is, he's going to remind you that, no, that's not you. You have everything that you need. The Spirit has already changed you. He's made you different. And friends, I want to make it this practical. You need to remember that. That's why we come to church often. I am the most forgetful, short-term person in the world. I can remember being three years old and getting ready for a trip to Disney. I'm not kidding. I still have the goofy hat from that trip. That probably helps me remember that. But I can't remember. I don't even know where my keys are right now. They're somewhere. If you find them, turn them in. Another thing that I lose often, maybe I'm not the only one in the room, is my wallet. I even bought a a magnet to attach it to my phone so that I can find my iPhone to find my wallet. And right now, I'm still not sure where my phone is. I think it's back there somewhere. But you know what it's like to be in such a, a hurry sometimes that you're like looking for something and looking for something, and then you realize, like in my case sometimes, like, oh, oh, my phone. I've been looking for my wallet for 20 minutes, and here it is. It's in my back pocket. Anybody ever had that happen? Yes, thank you, sir. Here's what's going to happen. In the fray of whatever it is that you're going through this week, you're going to be like, oh, I don't, I don't have it. I need my license. I, I need some resources. I, need, I don't know that I have what I need. Where's that? Where's that? Where's that? Where, how am I going to get it? And it's been not in your back pocket, but in your heart the entire time. The Holy Spirit empowering, enabling. Jesus secured that. He took care of that. He paid for that. He's provided that already. And the best way for us to walk out of here today is in prayer, acknowledging in faith that we have what we need through the Holy Spirit. He will bring about the change that we so desire to see. And for those of you who are not in Christ, maybe listen as we pray that prayer of faith, to understand better what you could have if you would come to Jesus in faith even today.